Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a non-profit, non-partisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, Thank you all so much for coming. Um, And my name is Patricia Patterson. I chair the World Affairs Council, and we're really thrilled to see this wonderful turnout from Michael Mandelbaum today. And uh, it's my happy assignment to introduce Richard Rodzinski. And Richard and I have become friends since we've been coming over here quite a bit. And Richard has been a wonderful um, introducer. I I have never known much about music. And Richard absolutely is an avenue into music at the highest level, and he knows how to make it accessible. And I think that's a wonderful gift because there are many people who are experts in their field who are totally intimidating about that. Uh, But Richard, after a career with the San Francisco Opera and the Metropolitan Opera, has been executive director of the Clyburn Foundation since 1986. Uh, And his father was the music director of the New York Philharmonic. He was born in New York and raised in Chicago, South America, and Europe. He returned to America in 1959 and spent his undergraduate years at Oberlin, which of course is a wonderful school for music, and Columbia, which is my alma mater in the business school, and remained at Columbia University for his graduate work in musicology. So we're very fortunate to have Richard in Fort Worth. We're lucky to have him in North Texas. And uh, so Richard, it is your turn to perform here. Thank you very much. Um, I was delighted when Pat asked me to make this introduction because uh, it really gives me great pleasure to introduce a very brilliant, brilliant friend who we first met uh, quite some time ago in in, uh, Washington, D.C., and whose outstanding attributes are uh, just go on and on and on. He's the Christian Herter Professor of American Foreign Policy at Johns Hopkins University, uh, he held uh, teaching posts at Harvard, Columbia, uh, is the regular foreign affairs columnist for Newsday, associate director of the Aspen Institute, Institute's Congressional Project on American Relations, and on and on and on. He's a graduate of Yale University uh, and received his doctorate at Harvard. He has also written 10 books and, and reviewed uh, and worked with many others. His greatest accomplishment, however, I think, is that he married Anne, who is one of my closest friends, since we were both in high school uh, <clears throat> about uh, 20 years ago. Was it Anne, something like that? Yeah, 10, 20 years ago. Uh, a word about his, his 10th book, which I just finished a little while ago. It is, uh, it's a fascinating book, the book that he will be speaking about. Uh, it's really what I think one can refer to as a page-turner. Uh, it gets more and more exciting as you keep going, and, and uh, in fact, it's when he begins to raise a, a truly hair-raising question as to how long the current state of affairs can be supported and what the consequent solutions might be, uh, it, uh, it's, it becomes a fascinating, absolutely fascinating book. So, uh, it, without further ado, if I may uh, introduce 
the author of also, amongst things like the nuclear future, the dawn of peace in Europe, uh, this wonderful book called The Meaning of Sports, Why Americans Watch Baseball, Football, and Basketball, and What They See When They Do. May I introduce Professor Mantelbaum. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. It's, it's uh, a great a pleasure to be here with you today, and it's an honor to be introduced by Richard Roginski, the uh, executive director and, and president of the Van Cliburn Foundation, which, as you all know, is one of the cultural treasures, not just of Fort Worth in Texas, but of the United States. And I also want to say how pleased I am that we're joined today by my friend and colleague, Professor David Smith of Baylor University, who's been able to uh, make the trip from uh, Waco. Very, very good to see him, a, a very prominent uh, scholar in the field of international security and, and foreign policy. Uh, I'm going to talk about my book, The Case for Goliath, and I want to begin with the subtitle, which also expresses the thesis of the book, how America acts as the world's government in the 21st century. Now, to call the foreign policy of the United States tantamount to acting as the world's government is unusual and indeed has proven to be controversial. But it is justified. Indeed, I think it is illuminating of American foreign policy and of the world in which we live in a number of ways. Uh, to call the role of the United States in the world that of a government tells us something important, I think, about the world. It tells us that the advances in the technologies of transportation, communication, and war have knitted the different parts of the planet together so tightly that the world itself like local and national communities, now requires some governance. The use of the term government applied to American foreign policy also, I believe, tells us something important about the United States. This country plays an unusual and indeed, I believe, unprecedented role in the world in the 21st century. And that role is not really, I think, captured by the familiar terms great power or superpower. A new term is needed, and the new term often applied to American foreign policy is empire. But the term empire in this context is, I think, unsatisfactory because it is inaccurate. It's inaccurate in the first place because the United States did not deliberately undertake the role that it now plays. This role which I believe is a governmental role, is the unintentional outgrowth of a series of policies that the United States undertook during the Cold War and that have been extended and expanded in the post-Cold War period. And the term empire, as applied to the United States, is inaccurate, I believe, for a second reason. And that is, the essence of empire is governing other peoples against their will. And this is not something that the United States does. At least we don't do it deliberately or very often. And when the United States does find itself governing other societies, as in the Balkans or currently in Iraq, uh, 
we don't do it very well, and there is a very powerful inclination to get rid of this responsibility as soon as possible. That is not the way uh, empires typically behave. The great empires of the past held on to their imperial territories as long as they could, and that, of course, does not apply to the United States. Well, using the term government to describe what the United States does beyond its borders tells us something important as well, I think, about other countries. It helps to explain why, despite all the criticism of American foreign policy that we hear so often from every corner of the planet these days, there has been no direct, effective opposition to the American role in the world mounted by any other country or even group of countries. This is opposition that other countries certainly could mount if they chose to do so, and the fact that they do not, the fact that they seem perfectly happy to let the United States do what it does, while of course roundly criticizing it, suggests to me that other countries uh, don't feel threatened by the United States and indeed recognize that they derive benefits from American foreign policy, even foreign policies that they criticize severely. There is a final reason that I think the use of the term government to refer to American foreign policy is justified. And that is, I believe, that the term is accurate. That is to say, uh, the United States provides some, although certainly not all, of the services to other countries that governments ordinarily provide within the countries that they govern. And those governmental services really fall into two categories, those involving international security and those involving the international economy. So let me now uh, discuss those briefly in that order. International security first. The United States helps keep order in the world. And it is, after all, the first duty of any government to keep order. That is, by some philosophical accounts, the reason that government is formed in the first place. The United States does this on an international scale. And two ways in particular that the United States helps keep the international order are, I think, worth mentioning. One is a service that I've called, in the case for Goliath, reassurance. By that I mean that the American military presence in Europe and East Asia relieves the countries of these regions of anxieties they would otherwise feel that their neighbors might threaten them. In this sense, American military forces stationed in Europe and in the Asia-Pacific region serve as a buffer, a pacifier. You might even call them a babysitter. The American philosopher Woody Allen once said that 90% of life is showing up. Well, 100% of the global governmental service of reassurance is showing up. That is to say, the mere presence of American forces reassures countries of these two regions. That means that the governmental service of reassurance is invisible and therefore unappreciated, but highly important nonetheless. 
The second way in which the United States helps keep order around the world that I think is noteworthy is the major responsibility that this country has assumed for dealing with what is, I think, generally regarded as the greatest early 21st century threat to global peace and security. That threat is the spread of nuclear weapons to countries, so-called rogue states or terrorist groups, that would make unhappy, dangerous, and damaging use of these weapons if they got control of them. Now, how the United States leads the effort to restrain nuclear proliferation is controversial. That is to say, American policies toward Iraq, Iran, and North Korea have been, are, and no doubt will continue to be subjects of controversy. But even countries critical of specific American policies in the area of nuclear nonproliferation generally agree that the goal of nonproliferation is a worthy, indeed a necessary one, and these countries, whatever their criticisms of the United States, tend to assume that the United States will take the lead in this effort. The Iraq war can be seen, I think, as an example of the United States attempting to resist the spread of nuclear weapons. So let me say something about how that war fits into the global role of the United States as I see it, and specifically I want to say something about the rationale for that war. The real reason for going to war to depose Saddam Hussein and his regime, or at least in my view, the best reason for such a war, was not, uh, in my opinion, the one that was publicly presented. A good reason for eliminating Saddam uh, was not to uh, dispossess him of the chemical weapons that he was thought, sincerely, but as it turned out, wrongly, to possess. After all, there are many countries in the world that possess chemical weapons, and we don't go to war to take away those weapons. The good reason, the plausible reason, or at least in my view, the most defensible reason for the uh, Iraq war, was to prevent Saddam from getting at some time in the future, if he were not removed from office, nuclear weapons, a circumstance that would, I think, have been truly dangerous. Insofar as keeping Saddam from ultimately obtaining nuclear weapons was the rationale for the Iraq war, uh, it was a preventive war. And as such, it followed from the security doctrine issued by the current administration in the fall of 2002 as a response to the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. It's important, I think, to note the difference between a preventive war and a preemptive war, with which it is often confused. The terms are sometimes used interchangeably, but they really are quite distinct. A preemptive war is a war that a country fights when it knows that it is on the verge of being attacked by another and decides to get in the first blow. In the case of a preemptive war, war is certain. The only question is which side will strike first. A preventive war is different. A preventive war is waged against a country that might sometime in the future either attack or do something 
equally injurious to the country launching the preventive war. Now, the case in favor of the doctrine of preventive war rests on the special characteristics of nuclear weapons, which mean, at least according to the rationale for this doctrine, that once a rogue state or a terrorist group gets possession of nuclear weapons, it's too late to prevent serious damage. That means that the use of force to prevent the possession of nuclear weapons is justified. Now, uh, you will note that the administration did not justify the Iraq war on this basis, perhaps because it believed that uh, this particular rationale was not compelling enough to generate public support for the Iraq war. Whatever the reason that this particular rationale was not invoked, uh, I believe, and say in the case for Goliath, that the doctrine and practice of preventive war is not likely to establish itself as central to American foreign policy in the future. And this is so, I think, for at least three reasons. First, the war that was fought and is being fought on the basis of the doctrine of prevention, the Iraq War, has turned out badly. Or at least it has proven considerably more costly than the American public initially believed it would be and more costly than the American public apparently will tolerate because polls show that the war is now unpopular. A second reason that preventive war is not likely to loom in the future of American foreign policy is that the other two likely targets of a preventive war, namely North Korea and Iran, don't lend itself to such an operation for various reasons. And I think that would be true even if the Iraq operation had gone more smoothly than it has gone. A third and not least important reason that preventive war is not, I think, likely to establish itself as the centerpiece of American foreign policy is that it runs contrary to international law. It violates, specifically, the fundamental principle of international law, which is the inviolability of sovereignty. Under international law, it is legitimate to go to war against a country because of what that country has done, but it is not legitimate to go to war against a country because of what it might do or because of the kind of government it has, which was the case in the war against Iraq. Now, it's worth noting, having raised the conflict between the doctrine of preventive war and international law as generally understood, that this conflict also applies to the other major innovation in American security policy in the post-Cold War period, namely the practice of humanitarian intervention. By humanitarian intervention, I mean military intervention in the affairs of another country not for reasons of self-defense or security, but rather to rescue beleaguered people. This doctrine, this practice of humanitarian intervention was implemented several times in the 1990s, in Somalia, in Haiti, 
in Bosnia and in Kosovo. And humanitarian intervention, whatever its virtues, also runs counter to the general understanding of international law, according to which the only legitimate, the only legal reason for war is to repel cross-border aggression. Preventive war and humanitarian intervention are innovations of two different, uh, two different administrations. The current administration in the first case, the preceding Clinton administration in the second case. And these two administrations are generally thought to be polar opposites where foreign policy is concerned. But the two practices that they pioneered are, I think, like fraternal twins. They may be outwardly different, but they share the same basic DNA. They are both based on American power, American beliefs about international relations and morality, and the American position in the world in the first decade of the 21st century. Moreover, both these two doctrines, both these two innovations in American strategy have proved unpopular with other countries. And perhaps even more important for their future, both humanitarian intervention and preventive war have proven unpopular with the American public and unpopular for the same reason. Both of them turn out to lead to the task of nation building. And this is a task Americans don't like to do and generally do not do well. Well, let me turn now to the global economy because here, as for matters of international security, the United States does for the rest of the world what governments do for the countries that they govern. One economic service that the United States performs is what I have called enforcement. Within countries, governments enforce contracts and generally provide the confidence without which commerce cannot take place. The United States does this on a global scale. For example, the United States Navy patrols the world's two greatest and most important trade routes, the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. Like reassurance in security affairs, enforcement in international economic matters is vital, but it's also more or less invisible and therefore generally taken for granted. Now, for the international economy as a whole, the United States also supplies the world's most frequently used money, the dollar. Through the International Monetary Fund, the United States has acted as a kind of lender of last resort to distressed economies, especially those in East Asia in the latter half of the 1990s, just as central banks, such as our own Federal Reserve, do in times of economic crisis within countries. The United States has also performed the governmental function of consumer of last resort. American domestic consumption has served as the engine of global growth for the better part of a decade, although this presents perils to the United States as well as to the rest of the world because of the large current account deficits that it has generated. There's one other governmental service the United States performs for the global economy that is worth mentioning. 
Just as governments within countries sponsor public utilities that provide power and water, so the United States assures the global supply of oil by protecting the region that is its largest source, the Persian Gulf. And this too, I think, qualifies as a global governmental service. Energy is also the area where, in my judgment, American foreign policy is least satisfactory, indeed where it does the most harm. The case for Goliath is largely an analytical, not a critical book, but it does include a criticism of American energy policy. America's unusually high per capita consumption of energy greatly increases global demand. Now, when much of the world's oil came from Texas, this was fine, but it doesn't come from Texas anymore. It comes from countries that are undemocratic, unreliable, unstable, and in some cases, aggressive. And it puts lots of money in the pockets of the leaders of these countries. Indeed, uh, America's high consumption of energy has several unfortunate consequences, and the list of those consequences reads very much like the list of the world's worst problems. American energy consumption leading to high energy consumption and resources flowing to undesirable regimes helps to fund terrorism because some of these regimes, either directly or indirectly, give the, the money that they receive to terrorist groups. Therefore, as has been noted, the United States is waging a war against terrorism and funding both sides. Second, as I've noted, the, uh, the American energy consumption leading to high global energy consumption helps to prop up undesirable governments, governments that the United States is criticizing and in some cases trying to remove by other methods. Iran would be a good case in point. The level of American energy consumption risks, and this is a third danger, triggering a geopolitical competition for secure supplies of oil, possibly with China and India in the future. Fourth, uh, America's oil addiction, as the president called it in his most recent State of the Union message, aggravates the American current account deficit. And fifth, and finally, but certainly not least, it aggravates the danger of global warming. Well, uh, if our pattern of energy consumption has all these unfortunate consequences, why don't we change it? We don't change it because we, the American public, resist change. The obvious solution to this problem is higher energy, and especially gasoline prices, achieved through taxation. This is what the Western Europeans and the Japanese do. And were energy, and especially gasoline, more costly, this would lower demand for it and make alternative sources, sources of energy not found in these unfortunate countries, economically viable. In the long run, this would be extremely beneficial to the United States and to most of the rest of the world as well. But in the short term, it could have painful consequences. It would impose economic sacrifice and could lead to a recession. The time horizon for most individuals, that is for most of us, especially where our economic well-being is concerned, 
And therefore, the time horizon of the politicians whom we elect is the short term. And that means that constructive action is not taken in the United States. Still, uh, it's my view, as I say in the case for Goliath, that if all those hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people who've gone into the streets around the world over the last several years protesting against one American policy or another, especially the war in Iraq, as well as against the phenomenon of globalization, if all of those people really wanted to make the world a better place, they would take to the streets in favor of a higher gasoline tax in the United States. Well, energy aside, the argument, which is the core of the case for Goliath, that the United States plays such a uniquely benign role in the world raises an obvious question. If we're doing so many good things for other people, why is there so much anger against the United States and the world? Why do they hate us? I devote an entire chapter of the case for Goliath to answering this question. I think that hatred is not quite the right word for the sentiment that so many people in other countries manifest about and against the United States. Resentment is, I think, the better term, and the United States is resented for a simple reason. We're powerful. Nobody, after all, loves Goliath. Mixed with resentment, there is an element of fear. Fear of what the United States might do with all this power, although not so much fear, it's important to note, as to motivate countries actually to do anything about this power. They may not like it, they may harbor some anxieties about this great American power, but it doesn't seem menacing enough for other countries to bestir themselves to check or reduce it. Still, uh, negative sentiment about the United States around the world is, I think, unlikely to disappear, partly because such sentiment is timeless and for several other reasons as well. One of these reasons is that specific American foreign policies are always going to be controversial. Therefore, they're always going to be criticized and should be criticized. After all, uh, open criticism of policies is common within democracies. There's no reason that there shouldn't be criticism between and among democracies as well. As in democracies, however, uh, where criticism of specific policies does not mean that people want to change the form of government, so in, uh, in international relations, the criticism of specific American foreign policies does not mean that other countries wish to dislodge the United States from the position in the world that it now occupies. Winston Churchill once said that you should never criticize your own government when you are abroad or cease to do so when you are at home. Well, uh, insofar as the United States is the world's government, everybody in other countries is basically at home, and so when they criticize the United States, they're simply carrying out their Churchillian obligation. I don't think we should be surprised and I don't think we should be unhappy at this. And in any event, we'll have to get used to it because it's not going to change. A second reason that anti-American sentiment is bound to persist is that in some circumstances and in some countries, 
this sentiment is politically convenient. The United States serves as a convenient scapegoat, the object of blame for harm actually caused by impersonal disruptive forces such as globalization, or for the shortcomings of local governments that wish to shift the blame for these shortcomings and deflect local anger about it away from themselves. This is a common phenomenon in the Arab Middle East. Third, I think there is a special problem with this particular administration, especially on the part of our closest international friends and allies, the Western Europeans. Their problem stems not from personalities, but from, I believe, ideology. What I mean by this is that there is no mainstream political party in Europe, or at least in Western Europe, no party capable of winning power in a free election and governing by itself that shares the fundamental precepts of our Republican Party. There is no European uh, political party that is committed to smaller government and low taxes to uh, social conservatism and to assertive nationalism, as is the Republican Party and as are uh, at least half of the American people. Now, I'm not seeking to make a partisan point here, and this is not a partisan book. It can certainly be argued that Europe should be and is becoming more Republican. Some of the economic reforms now on the agendas of some Western European countries and some of the developing policies toward immigrants in Europe would move these countries more in the direction favored in the United States by the Republican Party. Instead, the point that I'm making here is an analytical one. When Republicans dominate the federal government in Washington, as they have for the last several years, because these views are not well represented in Europe, the United States tends to look more alien than it does under other circumstances and looks all the more alien without the common cause of the Cold War that bound Europe and the United States together for more than four decades. And looks not only alien but also alarming because the United States is now so powerful in comparison with the rest of the world, including Europe. Well, there's a fourth and final reason that the United States will never get the thanks that, if you accept the argument of my book, we probably deserve for the international services that we perform. And that reason is that if other countries acknowledge the benefits they receive from American foreign policy, they might come under pressure to start paying for those benefits. They might risk, that is, losing their status as what economists call free riders. A free rider is somebody or a group who gets something for nothing. And that, we all recognize, is an arrangement that no individual and no government will lightly surrender. In general, therefore, anti-Americanism comes, I believe, with the territory. It's a function of the American role in the world and will persist as long as that role persists. Which leads me to the final question that I address in the case for Goliath. Namely, how long will this role as the world's government persist? In general, 
my view is that the rest of the world won't do anything to stop the United States from acting as the world's government, but won't do anything to help us perform these services either. And this, I believe, is true even of the European Union, a collection of large, some of them wealthy, certainly most of them, and ambitious, a few of them countries, that often talks about playing a global role, but in the end, I think, doesn't really follow through on its rhetoric. The European abdication of a global role is most obvious where the use of force is concerned. The European countries, once the great powers of the planet, now have tiny militaries when quasi-pacifist public attitudes toward the use of military force. But this pattern uh, obtains as well even in non-military areas, even on issues where the Europeans are vocal about the need to do something. For example, they talk a lot about global warming and we're the principal architects of the Kyoto Protocol, which is designed to deal with the problem. But although the Europeans have done better in restricting their emissions of greenhouse gas than have the United States, they really haven't done all that well. Their performance is not all that impressive, especially given their rhetoric on this subject. And the same is true of the issue of global poverty, which the Europeans often identify as the greatest challenge facing the international community. In trying to alleviate global poverty, the European performance is no better than that of the United States. And in some ways, for instance, in the area of agricultural protectionism and their willingness to admit crops from poor countries into their own markets, the European performance is actually worse. In general, I think Europe, despite its global and globalist rhetoric, has become a continent that is inward-looking and parochial. The Europeans care first, foremost, and just about only about Europe. Now, that's not something to be sneezed at. Europe is an extremely important part of the world, and the achievement of the European countries in constructing a zone of peace and a remarkably well-integrated economic unit since World War II is remarkable. And the model that the Europeans offer of international cooperation is an extremely potent and valuable one. So I don't mean to say that Europe contributes nothing to global well-being. But uh, the Europeans are, are not very active beyond the borders of Europe. American foreign policy would certainly be more complicated, but I believe the United States and the world would actually be better off if Europe really became the kind of global presence that some of its leaders say is their goal. But I don't expect this to happen anytime in the foreseeable future. Now, this means, among other things, that the unilateralism for which the United States is often criticized in Europe and elsewhere, the so-called penchant for acting alone, comes about as much by default as by design. American unilateralism is a problem, not because other countries are about to oppose what we do, but rather, and this is another important theme of the case for Goliath, because the American public may tire of supporting the American role as the world's government. The price we pay for carrying out this role 
is now relatively low, and that is because no major country opposes this role. We can see that it's that we can see that it is now low by noting that the proportion of the federal budget and of the gross domestic product of national output that goes to defense now, even as the United States acts as the world's government, is considerably lower than it was during the Cold War. And if other countries, if other major countries, the Europeans, the Chinese, the Japanese, or the Indians, decided to mount active opposition to the American role in the world, the picture would be a very different one. But they haven't, and they won't. That, however, does not mean that the continuation of this role is assured. For on the horizon loom huge competing costs in the form of the explosion in entitlement spending, especially spending on Social Security and Medicare, that will occur, that will occur as the baby boom generation, that is, those Americans born between 1946 and 1964, begins to retire. The money for supporting the American role in the world and the money for paying the costs of Social Security and Medicare come, of course, from the same pocket, the pocket of the American taxpayer. And as entitlement costs soar, the American taxpayer is going to feel increasingly pressed. Faced with a difficult and painful choice between domestic and international spending, between butter and guns, that is, the American public, absent a clear and overpowering international threat, is likely to opt for domestic spending, is likely to opt for butter over guns. That is why I conclude, in the case for Goliath, that the major threat to the continuation of the American role as the world's government comes not from China, but from Medicare. If the United States should reduce its role in the world, the result, I believe, would not be better global governance, but rather less of it. And less global governance would make for a less secure and less prosperous world. Even the harshest critics of one or another American foreign policy would, I believe, be extremely unhappy with the eclipse of the American role in the world. Now, how the domestic politics of American foreign policy will play out in the years ahead is unclear. What is clear, and this is my final point, is the attitude that the rest of the world is likely to adopt toward the American role as the world's government. They will continue to criticize it, they will not pay for it, and they will miss it when it is gone. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, and as, as is often our tradition, we have some very tough questions from the students. The first one will be from Joshua Modlin from Trinity High School. Given the possibility that the United States becomes bankrupt due to our intensive foreign policy, or we might even say Medicare, what role will our old Cold War enemy, Russia, assume in world affairs? Um, it's a good question. Um, as I say, I don't think uh, bankruptcy looms because of foreign policy. Foreign policy is actually rather cheap in historical terms. It's domestic costs 
that uh, are really going to uh, force difficult choices on the United States. And incidentally, um, those choices, the need for reforming uh, these entitlement programs, would be a pressing one, I think, probably even if the United States had no foreign policy, because the costs, the prospective costs are so high, uh, and uh, the, the relative cost of foreign policy, although it's hardly free, are, are so low. So that means for, for those of you now in high school, um, you've got to figure out a way, and we have to figure out a way, not to bankrupt you when people like me retire. And that, I believe, is going to be the central question in American politics for the next 20 years. What will Russia do? Uh, Russia uh, is a country that has experienced as steep a fall from power as almost any country has ever experienced. Uh, It lost half its territory. Its military basically collapsed, fortunately for the rest of the world. Uh, Its military is now so weak that there's some question as to whether the Russian military could actually defend Russia's borders should any country care to invade. Uh, And the Russian military has performed not only brutally but extremely ineffectively in trying to put down the rebellion in the southern province of Chechnya. All that means that whatever Russia does, it won't loom over the world and over Europe the way the Soviet Union did. Russia is going to be militarily weak for the foreseeable future, with the exception of its large arsenal of nuclear weapons. But there, the great danger that Russia presents to the world is not as did the Soviet Union, uh, a danger that stems from Russian strength, that stems from Russian weakness. The great danger is that some of these nuclear weapons or nuclear materials or uh, nuclear expertise in the form of scientists and engineers will come into the hands of rogue states and will speed the course of nuclear proliferation. So uh, Russian weakness is a problem. Uh, Russia is also because it it is large, uh, a factor that its immediate neighbors have to take into account. Uh, Ukraine to the west, uh, the countries of Central Asia and the Caucasus to the south. Now, Ukraine is an important country for Europe. It's less important for the United States. And that means that what Russia does to its neighbors and with its neighbors will be of real concern uh, to the European Union, uh, which now, of course, includes Poland, uh, which has a small border with Russia and a large border with Ukraine. So uh, the fate of Russia, the potential instability of Russia, is a serious concern for Europe, but less a concern for the United States than it was during the Cold War. Finally, uh, Russia is most important to the United States and to the world now, and certainly for the next decade, as a source of energy. And in recent weeks... Russia has followed policies, the brief cutoff of natural gas shipments to Ukraine, that call into question its reliability as a supplier of energy. So uh, Russia becomes part, in my view, of the general problem of global energy supplies, the problem that I mentioned during my talk. Uh, It's a good thing that Russia is part of the global energy supply chain because the more energy that's available, the better it is for us. 
But the fact that Russia is a part of the global energy supply chain is worrisome for two reasons. First, because the revenues that Russia gets from the sale of its energy now seem to be reinforcing a government that is not moving toward democracy. And second, because for various reasons, like countries in the Persian Gulf for other reasons, Russia may not turn out to be an absolutely reliable supplier, and that would be a serious problem for the rest of the world. Question from the floor. Ah, China. Well, China, um, that, that's, uh, that's a great question and a, and a large one. Um, let me say just a, a couple of things about China um, by, way of, uh, by way of response, although they, they don't adequately cover the subject. First of all, uh, China is often thought to be the rising would-be superpower, the potential rival of the United States. And I, I think there's no doubt that as China becomes richer, as economic growth proceeds, China will become more influential. But I do not see China becoming a global rival to the United States in the next two decades. And I sometimes say that this book, The Case for Goliath, comes with an implicit two-decade warranty. That's why I say <laughs> is relevant after that, I'm not sure. Um, it, it is, of course, of enormous importance which way China goes, what kind of country it becomes, whether it wishes to integrate itself peacefully into the existing international, international system or change the international system, whether it becomes, in the language of uh, international relations specialists, a status quo power or a revisionist power. Um, Comparisons are sometimes made between China in the 21st century and Germany at the beginning of the 20th. Germany had grown very rapidly, uh, felt that it didn't have international privileges and power commensurate with its new status, and this German dissatisfaction ultimately led to two world wars. Uh, my own view is that that is not a course that China is likely to follow, first because thus far it seems to be much more inclined to the status quo, second because the lesson of the 20th century is that war doesn't pay very well, and in addition we now have uh, something called nuclear weapons which makes the kind of great global war that was waged twice in the first half of the 20th century forbiddingly expensive. The one exception to this relative optimism is the status of Taiwan. Uh, in a book that I published in uh, 2002 called The Ideas That Conquered the World, I discuss the status of Taiwan at some length, and I, uh, I term the Taiwan Strait the most dangerous place in the world. Dangerous because uh, this is an issue over which China has threatened under some circumstances to go to war, and we cannot be sure that those circumstances would never materialize. And if China did go to war over Taiwan, and I, I'm not suggesting this is likely, but it's certainly possible, that could draw in the United States. And both the United States and China, among other things, are equipped with nuclear weapons. So, so Taiwan is the wild card and the reason to temper optimism about China. Let me... Uh, make one other comment uh, about China. Uh, you know, China is huge, and like other huge creatures, uh, it depends on which part of it you're gazing at, wh which angle of approach you take. Um, 
Now, I was uh, I was in China about a decade ago with a group of specialists on foreign policy and security, but we were joined by one American economist who was a specialist on China and spent a lot of time there, but who'd never really become involved in conversations about foreign policy, defense, security, military issues. And uh, since this group was largely composed of security specialists, we met with our Chinese counterparts who also specialize in security and the issue of Taiwan and nuclear proliferation and ballistic missile defense came up frequently and regularly and there was a certain amount of acrimony and difference of opinion. Uh, and after a few days, uh, I, was, uh, I, ha- I was having a drink at the bar with this uh, economist and I said, well, this is all new to you. What, what do you make of all this? What do you make of this, this conversation in, in, into which you've never entered before, even though he knew China very well? And he said, well, you know, it's interesting. You guys, you security types, have a very different view of China and the Chinese leadership than I do, looking at it from an economic perspective. From your point of view, you think of the people who rule China as being men who get up every morning and say to themselves, what can I do to make China even more powerful? What can I do to expand our influence in Asia throughout the world? What can I do to thwart American power? How can I foil the Americans and increase our prestige today? So that's the impression I get of your view of China from these conversations. He said, my view of China is very different. My view is that these same guys get up every morning and they say, oh my God, how am I going to get through another day? Look at all the problems I have. How am I going to, you know, how am I going to deal with all these outbursts of peasant unrest? How am I going to get energy? How am I going to keep people from choking to death in all this pollution? How am I going to, you know, how am I going to deal with all the people who are coming to me before lunchtime with problems that I can't solve? Well, those are two very different pictures of China. I suspect that my economist colleague's picture is probably the more accurate one, which doesn't mean that uh, everything is going to be okay, that China will never make trouble. It does mean that from the Chinese point of view, their agenda is full and then some with their domestic problems. They're not looking to make trouble elsewhere and will avoid it, I think, if they possibly can. Well, (laughs) World War II, World War II was uh, over 40%. That's uh, 45, 46, yeah. Uh, but that was total war. The whole country was mobilized. During the Cold War, uh, it varied. It never, I think it may have gotten briefly up to 10% during Korea, but uh, it was always in single digits. And with the exception of Korea and Vietnam, it was around 5 or 6%. And it certainly before Iraq, it was down to 3 So as a, as a proportion of a total output, it was actually cut in half. Now, in absolute terms, uh, of course, it, it, uh, it was not cut in half. It did go down for a while and then started to go up in absolute terms, but that's because the, the economy was growing. And there are also uh, statistics or various versions of the same statistic about how the United States, how military spending in the United States compares with other countries and I forget which statistic, I think I, I cite one of the statistics or one version of it in the book, but the United States spends as much money as the next eight countries and the next 15 countries put together. Uh, that is, uh, whatever, however you choose to calibrate 
military spending. American military spending far outstrips any other country, in, including China. Also, now China is, once you get into this issue, there are lots of caveats and qualifications because nobody really believes that the Chinese military budget as published is straightforward and honest. And also, uh, it's a little bit difficult to compare, say, China and the United States because, as those of you who are familiar with, with the, the defense spending know, the largest item in the American defense budget is personnel. You've got to pay people a lot of money to be in the military. The Chinese do not. So uh, they, you know, personnel is not exactly free for them. So uh, depending on how you gauge it, uh, the United States is spending as much as the next three or five or eight or 15 or I guess 100 countries put together. But there's no doubt that our military spending in, in absolute terms far outstrips those of that of any other country. Our last question will be from Lauren from Boswell High School. What a tough question to end the, today's program. Do you foresee the use of force against Iran because of, the nuclear, because of its nuclear program? Well, that's a very, uh, a very good question. Uh, and I should say that uh, I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows. I do think that um, it is right not to take the option of using force off the table because I believe the chances of getting a satisfactory outcome, that is getting Iran to give up its nuclear weapons program, are better if the United States is seen to reserve the right or the option to use force. That doesn't mean that using force would be a good idea. Uh, it means that it should not be taken off the table. You shouldn't tell the Iranians they've got nothing to worry about. Um, now, there are many problems and difficulties with the idea of using force against Iran. Um, I think that the chances... Well, I, th this issue has now come up in the last couple of weeks because of an article in The New Yorker by Seymour Hirsch quoting sources in the intelligence community is saying that uh, there, there are plans underway to bomb the Iranian nuclear facilities. And uh, I would assume there are plans because the Pentagon is a huge organization. It's supposed to have contingency plans for everything. So I trust it does have contingency plans for this. Uh, it's also the case uh, that uh, if force were to be used to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons, the operation of choice would be to bomb the facilities that are thought to be integral in Iran for making nuclear weapons. Now that, uh, that always raises two caveats. First, we don't know where they all are. Um, and second, you couldn't, you couldn't set it back indefinitely. You have to keep bombing. Uh, so you would really just be buying time. But you might buy a lot of time, and you could probably do serious damage to the Iranian nuclear weapons program, even though we don't know where all of it is. So I think that uh, the, the bombing option as a military and political option, leaving aside the, uh, the possible costs, uh, is not inconceivable. Uh, if uh, the American government should decide that... Uh, setting back the Iranian nuclear weapons program for a number of years was preferable to accepting Iran with nuclear weapons, and that's a very 
contentious and debated and debatable point. I think it is feasible. The problem is uh, that if you assume, that we, with, there used to be uh, during the, the Cold War, and people would argue about the arms race, a syndrome called the fallacy of the last move. That is, you say, well, we'll do this, and, we'll, and, there, and, and we will be in a better position. We will, you know, we will build X missiles, and then we'll have an advantage over the Soviet Union. But that assumes that the Soviet Union was not going to respond. The Soviet Union always did respond, so you have to think two or three or X number of moves ahead. If the United States bombed Iran, the Iranian government would likely try to lash out at the United States, and it has some means of doing so, certainly in Iraq and maybe also through terrorism. And uh, the regime would probably, or at least possibly, uh, mount as determined a military campaign against the United States and against American interests as possible. And if that campaign turned out to be relatively formidable, then it would lead the United States into a military confrontation with Iran, which would probably mean trying to overthrow the Iranian government, which the United States could probably do, although it's not as if there are lots of troops available for the, uh, for the task at the moment. But that means getting involved in the internal affairs of Iran, and that means probably some form of occupation and nation building, and nothing looks less attractive than occupying another Middle Eastern country now. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, was, I was struck in listening to your program just how many speakers we've had recently who sometimes are instant pundits or Sunday morning analysts, and it's really refreshing to hear a scholar, someone who's looking at the big picture, and uh, I really encourage and urge all of you to, to, to read this book. I've read the reviews. I've not yet read the whole book, but I've read the reviews. I plan to read the book, and um, I, it, it really does merit your attention, and thank you for, for, for writing it. Again, I want to remind you, because some of you came in late, if you're not yet a member, please consider joining the World Affairs Council. If you are a member, pick up the brochure, put it in your breast pocket, put it in your brochure, give it to everybody you see. You were at the, your school a little while ago taking your daughter to the doctor. Hello, doctor. Do you know about the World Affairs Council? And also, Jerry White will be here in a few weeks. And for those of you who didn't hear me, Jerry White uh, was associated in, with his team in winning the Nobel Peace Prize, very close associate of Princess Di as well as Queen Noor. So don't miss that program. Thanks again for being with you. We'll see you soon. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.